I love Christmas. You know, it's only two months and one week away. It's coming. It's coming. But I don't play that just, just because it's getting close to Christmas, and I love it. Um, what made that night holy? That's one of my favorite Christmas songs, Oh Holy Night. Listen to the words just to the first, the first verse. Oh Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, the thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder brings a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. We're going to talk about that and what that means tonight, all right? But first, we're going to have the ushers come, and we're going to receive our offering if they would prepare to do that. Thank you for your faithfulness in giving. If you're a guest here, we don't expect you to give, but we're sure glad you came. I know that some of you, this has been traumatic already because you've had to find a new seat. They're all different. The aisles are different. And we've already prayed you can go ahead and pass the plates. So uh, uh, we just felt like uh, this, this would be just a more intimate, a, just kind of a better environment for us. And uh, so I'm excited about us meeting uh, in here and so appreciate Pastor Brent and his leadership and the job he's been doing leading Wednesday nights. Just so grateful um, for him and for his heart and his teaching. Um, I need to let you know that on October 31st, we always have a challenge whenever October 31st falls on a Wednesday night because it's Halloween, and, and the challenge is we, we always have less people and less children and less volunteers because there's all sorts of events that happen on that night, and especially for kids, and so it's always a dilemma to know what to do. So this year... We, we have planned something that I think is, is very special uh, and a wonderful time, uh, and that is we are going to spend that evening together in an experience of prayer for the nation and for the nations, and that's going to be our focus. It's going to be a concert of prayer, and I'm really excited about uh, this night that we're going to have. The, the normal children's activities will not be happening there is childcare through age five, but we're going to meet together and uh, Pastor Jeff uh, behind the scenes is coordinating with the team that he has. Pastor Derry's going to kind of host it and lead us through it. It's just going to be a great time. Uh, it's the Wednesday before elections. How many of you think we should be praying for our country? We need to pray. Amen. And uh, I, don't, I don't know all of the political issues and where everybody stands, but I know this. The Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. And to pray for our country. And so we want to pray. And so I hope you'll come and be a part of that. Same time, normal time, 645. Uh, we'll let you go by 8 o'clock and we'll have a really good time um, asking God to, to really do something great in our nation and around the world. Okay? Um, you know, one of, my, one of my favorite songs that it's, I, I guess it's kind of a Christmas song. You hear it most 
around Christmas, but I don't know that it would, actually a lot of these songs would not have to be relegated to Christmas. They wouldn't be if I had my way, um, but because I, I love Christmas music. But this one is a song called Mary Did You Know. You familiar with that song? Let me just read one of the verses to you. It says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And I love this line. And when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. What an incredible line. Now, both, both Matthew and Luke tell, tell the Christmas story. Mark just skips it completely. Mark's a Scrooge. When it, not, not really. Mark was writing to a different audience. Who, who, so he started at a different place in the story because a Roman audience really couldn't care less about the genealogy and, and, and the, the line of David and, and the prophecies of the Messiah. So Mark went right to a herald that would announce a new king. That's what Mark did. So he starts with John the Baptist. But Matthew and Luke tell the Christmas story. John tells the Christmas story in a really unique way. He tells it very briefly. And let me just read it to you. And I think, I think it's on the screen. It says, in the beginning, John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, the message, which is a paraphrase of scripture, said, verse 14 of, of John chapter one, the message says it like this. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's like a serious paraphrase, but I like it in that instance. We saw the glory with our own eyes. God became one of us. God with skin on moved into our neighborhood. Oh, holy night indeed. Falling on our knees seems to be an appropriate response when you grasp, grasp what God did in God coming to us, becoming one of us. Now, we're in a series, as most of you know, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And I want to just recap, because everything we've been talking about so far leads us up to what we're going to talk about tonight, all right? Think about the journey that we've been on together in this series. We began by looking beneath the surface. And one of the things that we talked about, and hopefully you'll be able to see this okay, one of the things that we talked about was, was how our lives are, are kind of like an iceberg. And, and I, I'm known for my artistic abilities, here, as you can tell. That's an iceberg. That does, looks nothing like an iceberg. But here's what we talked about. We talked about the fact that the reality is about 10% of our life is actually lived above the surface. And 90% of our life is beneath the surface. And we talked about the fact that in a culture that focuses almost exclusively on, on this 10% part that people can see, on our image, we need to be willing to dig deep down into who we really are at the core of who we are. That's where we kind of began this journey, this series. Well, then we moved into talking about breaking or overcoming the power of the past. One of the things that we find beneath the surface is our past. We all have a past. 
We all have a history. We have a family of origin. We have, we have a raising that shaped who we are, that shaped patterns in our mind, the way we think, the way we view God, the way we view people, the way we view work, the way we view conflict, all of that. We're shaped, whether we realize it or not, by the way that we grow up. Okay, so that's one of the things that we dive into, and, and understanding that is an important part of being emotionally healthy and mature so we can have an emotionally healthy spirituality. Well, then we moved on from there to talk about living in brokenness and vulnerability. Instead of living defensively, we, we learn to walk in humility and we recognize that we are broken, that we are all broken in different ways. And rather than our broken, brokenness being debilitating, instead we discover that our weakness, it's in our weakness that we can be made strong. Or a better way to say it is that in our weakness, God shows himself strong in our midst. And so we learn to live out of weakness. We talked about that. Then we moved on and we talked about learning to see our limits as a gift. Okay? understanding the God-given limits in our lives. Rather than continually overextending ourselves, we not only accept those healthy boundaries, but we see them as a gift from God. And then last week, Pastor Brent talked to us about enlarging our soul through grief and pain. Okay, so this is the journey that we've been on. It's been an inward journey. These are the things that we find beneath the surface. And if we're going to be emotionally healthy, emotionally mature, we've got to look at these things. We've got to deal with these things. Tonight, we're going to talk about moving out from the depth of, of inside of who we are. And that's where our focus is going to lie tonight, okay? Um, tonight, we're going to talk about the idea that part of being emotionally and spiritually healthy is learning to really love well. That's gonna be our focus. What does it mean to love well? As we become more and more spiritually and emotionally mature, we love God and we love others better. We grow in that capacity. Now we've said this before. We've said, um, and I think we even said at the beginning of this series, that spiritual maturity ultimately is about us being shaped more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Paul, Paul says things like, statements like, until Christ is formed in you. That word formed, the Greek word is the word uh, morpho'o, okay? And, and Paul uses that word or, or versions of that word multiple times. In another place, um, Paul talks about uh, the fact that those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. In Romans chapter 12, he says, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Those all come from that same root word, morpho'o, and that word basically means to shape something into a durable likeness. That's what that word means. So at the end of the day, when we're talking about spiritual formation, spiritual maturity, and I know that we've said this before, so we're rehearsing this a little bit. At the end of the day, what it looks like is us being shaped more and more into a lasting likeness of Jesus. That's really at the heart of what spiritual maturity is all about. Now, how do we know if that's happening in our lives? How can we tell if we're becoming more and more like Jesus? 
Well, I would suggest to you that ultimately it comes down to one thing. Jesus said that that the two greatest commandments, when he's asked what is it all about, what's the bottom line, what's the core of it all, and all these commandments we have, what's the most important, Jesus said, you know it, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said all the law, all the prophets hang on those two things. If we want to know if we're becoming more and more like Jesus, we simply have to ask the question, am I growing in my love for God and my love for people? Am I loving God and loving people well? Is my capacity for love growing? The primary way that we demonstrate our love for God is obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The primary way that we demonstrate our love for people is through sacrificial service. Am I growing in my capacity to love God and to love people? Now, that is not always... Love is not always the measurement that's used in most churches to determine spiritual maturity, right? I mean, often the way we measure spiritual maturity in other people is by how long someone's been a Christian or maybe by how much biblical knowledge they have, how many of the disciplines they follow, how gifted they may be. It's not always, in fact, it's probably not usually measured by how deep our love is for God and for people, how broad our love is, and how growing our love is. Love is is the measure. So that leads me to ask the question, how did God love us? What did God's love for us look like? Because obviously his love is perfect. What did his love look like for us? We know the scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Scripture says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. How did God love us? God came in human form and moved into our neighborhood. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God's model for love was incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That was his model for love, that he would become one of us. Now, Paul says that we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. A number of years ago, I was at a leadership conference where a gentleman by the name of Gary Haugen was one of the speakers. Gary Haugen was the senior trial attorney for the United States Department of Justice and was the lead investigator for the UN into the genocides that were the genocide that was taking place in Rwanda. Gary Haugen started a ministry called International Justice Mission, whose mission literally is is to come to the defense and bring deliverance to the millions of people around the world who suffer uh, the oppression of injustice any form of injustice. That's what they go after. And they put their lives on the line every day in order to accomplish that. Well, at this conference, uh, Gary made this statement, something like this statement. This probably isn't a direct quote. But he said basically this, if God is good, and we know that he is, right? If God is good, how will people around the world, especially those people suffering great oppression, and injustice, how will they ever know that God is good? How will young girls in India who are forced to work in brothels ever know that God 
is good. How will young children who work 15, 16-hour days every day in deplorable conditions around the world, how will they ever know that God is good? How will communities riddled with murder and gang violence and corrupt governments, how will villages where children are dying every single day from starvation, from treatable diseases, from, from contaminated drinking water, how will they ever know that God is good? And I would ask us, how will people in our community, in Fort Collins, in northern Colorado, the poor, the marginalized, the underserved, the orphan, the widow, the broken, the addict, how will they ever know that God is good? I'll tell you how they will know. They will know that God is good because his church will live incarnationally. If you type that in your computer, it'll be a red line, but I declare that as a word. When the church lives incarnationally, when the church really becomes the body of Christ, Jesus with skin on to a broken and oppressed world, that's when people discover that God is indeed good. That is God's plan A. And there is no plan B. That is God's plan. His plan for his church is incarnation, to make incarnation our model for loving well. So how do we do that? What does it look like for us to make incarnation the model for loving well? Well, Pete Scazzaro, who wrote the book Emotionally, The Emotionally Healthy Church, he also wrote the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which we have in our bookstore, which is, has informed our series that we're in. And if you haven't got the book, I hope, I hope that you'll get it and that you'll read it. It's a fantastic book. We're going through it as a pastoral team. And I would say outside of scripture, it is, it is digging deeper into our lives than any book we've ever studied together as pastors. In that book, he makes three suggestions for what it means to make incarnation our model for loving well. The first thing, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. The first thing he suggests is that we must enter another's world. That's really what incarnation is about. Loving well with incarnation as our model is that we enter another's world. Now, sometimes that means literally and physically entering another another's world, moving into the neighborhood, if you will. When I was a pastor in Colorado Springs, there was a gentleman that uh, attended our church there with his family whenever he was in town. His name is, it was, is, still is, Nicky Cruz. How many of you ever heard of Nicky Cruz? If you're, okay, a lot of you have heard of Nicky Cruz. He's getting old. I wouldn't tell him that to his face because he, he's still kind of tough, but um, he wasn't there very often because he was traveling, but his family was there the whole time. His daughter was in the youth group when I was a youth pastor way back, and then they were part of the church when I was a senior pastor there. And just a, a great, great guy that travels the world telling people about the love of Jesus and the hope that is in Jesus. And he focuses on inner cities, and he focuses on, on gangs. And the reason is because that's his world. That's the world he came out of. 50 plus years ago, Nikki was a leader of, of one of the mo most ruthless gangs in New York City called the Mau Mau's. That is until a young, white, skinny preacher by the name of David Wilkerson saw a picture in Life magazine of seven teenagers who were, con who were being convicted of murder in New York City, and that picture 
God used that picture to get a hold of David Wilkerson's heart and broke his heart and compelled him, called him to go to New York City where David incarnated the love of Jesus by walking the streets among gang members, risking his life to let them know that Jesus had a better way, that Jesus loved them. As a result, Nicky Cruz, the leader of this gang, gave his life to Jesus Christ. Sometimes incarnation looks like that. Sometimes it does. Like a Mother Teresa who lives her life among the poor and outcasts of Calcutta, caring for people that no one else will, will even look at. Sometimes it looks like a good friend of mine, Doyle Robinson, who lives in Denver and, and lives out his days each and every day, all day, loving, incarnating the love of God to, to the street kids, the street youth, homeless youth in downtown Denver on the 16th Street Mall, and day in and day out at the place is called Socks Place, because he started, he's actually been here and talked before, it's been several years, but he's, it's called Socks Place because the way he began the ministry is he got a big old duffel bag filled with tube socks, and he just started walking around downtown Denver, handing them out to homeless teenagers, because homeless people need socks, and so the whole place was called Socks Place, they call him Socks, that's, that's the only name that, that they know him by. And many lives have been transformed and he's provided a place where he incarnates the love of Jesus. Sometimes that's what it looks like. Not always does it look like that. But I would suggest to you that, that one thing we must do if we are going to enter into another's world, if we have any hope of entering into another's world, is we must learn to listen. We must learn to listen. You can jot that down. I don't think it's a note in your bulletin, but you can write that down. We have to learn to listen. In fact, I don't think we can ever truly love well without learning to listen. Proverbs 17, 27 says, A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent, and discerning if he holds his tongue. James said this, he makes it even more explicit. My dear brothers, take note of this. In other words, James said, write this down. He said, turn over your bulletin and jot this note down. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Quick to listen and slow to speak. When we really listen, we step into another person's world. And it begins to widen our perspective, even if we disagree with them. In fact, I would say especially if we disagree with them. If we learn to truly listen, it will expand our perspective. It'll help us to walk into their world. Scripture says that we are to speak the truth in love. We should never divorce truth from love, ever. And part of loving well is learning to truly listen to people. It's seeking first to understand and then to be understood. David Osberger said this. He said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Let me say that again because that's powerful. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. In the fourth century, Saint, I, I think it's Basil. If not, I apologize for calling him an herb. 
Basile, I don't know. The Bishop of Caesarea, Matt, you probably know. Basil? Yeah, more or less, he's like nodding, going, yeah, bless your heart, you tried. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> anyway, this Bishop dude of Caesarea in the fourth century, this is what he wrote. Listen to this statement. Annunciations are frequent. Incarnations are rare. Annunciations are frequent. Incarnations are rare. As I think about the political climate of our day and our culture, that statement applies so directly, doesn't it? There are many annunciations, declarations, speeches, but there is very little true listening on either side of the aisle. Very little listening. When I think about the church, because it's easy to criticize politics, let's talk about the church. When I think about the church in general, there can be a lot of annunciations, bold statements, judgments, sermons, but do we incarnate ourselves into our world, into our culture, by truly listening to people? Even if we adamantly disagree, even if their lifestyle directly contradicts the truth of Scripture, do we learn to listen or do we just enunciate? Do we just declare? Do we speak the truth in love? Because if we speak the truth in love, part of loving is truly listening. Because when we truly listen, we step into their world and it stretches our perspective to at least begin to understand why they may feel what they feel. That's part of loving well. That's the hard work. It's easier just to declare. It's way easier to do that. It's easier just to proclaim it and not have to worry about where the chips might fall, not have to worry about if anyone even receives the truth. It's the harder work to listen, to work, to understand so that love can happen, so that people can sense the love of Jesus, so that doors can begin to, it's the old statement that says people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's about incarnating the love of God by learning to listen. Now, I don't know about you, but listening does not come that natural for me. I tend to be quick to speak and slow to listen. I've noticed that. And if you don't believe that, my wife can confirm that statement about me. And I, I've, I've also learned this. I've learned that just being silent does not necessarily mean I'm listening. Have you discovered that? Because often when I'm silent, I'm not listening. I'm formulating my next statement. I'm preparing my defense or my next argument. Not necessarily really listening. And I see it especially in conflict. Whether it's at work, at home, in marriage, whatever it is, that's where it happens most is in conflict. I would encourage you to practice reflective listening. Practice it. And, and all to, to make it as simple as possible, all it means is that you practice reflecting back what you've heard the person say. And you reflect it back with respect and with empathy. You actually listen with an intent to expand your perspective to somehow identify with what they feel and why they feel the way they do. Practice that because if you get good at that, you'll be well on your way to entering into another's world. The second thing the author suggests is that we must 
hold on to ourselves. We must hold on to ourselves. Entering another person's world does not mean that you have to lose yourself. That's why the previous five principles we've talked about are so important to loving well. That's why they matter. See, because when you dig well beneath the surface, when you grapple with your past and your pain and your weakness and your limits, then you begin to know yourself pretty well. Then you can begin to enter someone else's world without losing yourself. Jesus entered our world, but he never lost sight of who he was, and he never lost sight of what he was called to do, and he never got distracted from what he was called to do. Because he entered our world, but he didn't lose himself. This is not on the screen, but, but just before Jesus would be arrested and crucified on a cross, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. The account is in John chapter 13, and this is what verse 2 says. Just listen to it. It says, The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Now listen to this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, because he knew those things, he was secure in that truth, who he was, who the Father was, who sent him and where he was headed. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And you know the story. He began one by one to wash the feet the lowest menial task of a servant of each and every one of his disciples. That's what Jesus did. Having been a pastor for a lot of years now, I've seen over and over again emotionally unhealthy and immature people lose themselves by entering into another's world. I've seen unhealthy relationships develop, even sinful relationships I've seen people blow right through healthy boundaries and limits and end up becoming resentful and bitter. I've even seen unhealthy and disobedient lifestyles come out of noble desires into an, to enter into another's world. Hebrews chapter 4, it's not on the screen. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin, who entered our world fully, but did not lose himself in that world. Now, I'm not talking about losing ourselves for, for, the, for Jesus' sake. That's different. I'm talking about losing ourselves by entering into another's world. Finally, lastly, the author suggests that we must hang between two worlds. We must hang between two worlds. I might say it this way, that we hang between two kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And by the way, we must never confuse the two. We must never confuse the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God. That is especially important in the political climate in which we live right now. Never lose sight that the kingdoms of this world, even the better kingdoms of this world, are not the kingdom of heaven. They're not the same. That one was free. That wasn't even part of your admission to get in tonight, all right? We live in this reality that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. It has come, it is here, and it is yet to come. That's the reality. And hanging between two worlds means mission and it means suffering. 
It's not the most popular thing to say, but it's the truth. It means mission and it means suffering. One of the passages of scripture that I refer to maybe more than any other passage of scripture is, is Paul's description of Jesus hanging between two worlds, his incarnation and exaltation in Philippians chapter two. It's not on the screen, but I'm gonna read it to us anyway. Paul writes this, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, incarnation. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Jesus hanging between two worlds, incarnation, humiliation, then exaltation, to follow Jesus in incarnation and not merely be content with annunciations and proclamations. We too have to die. We die to self. We die to selfish ambition. We die to our rights and we live. Our lives become fully and completely his. His mission in this world becomes our mission in this world. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live to love him and we live to love people and to give our lives for his purposes, not our own. To hang between two worlds for the sake of a lost and broken and hopeless humanity. And every time we gather at the Lord's table, every time we gather, we recognize our Savior was broken and spilled out for this world. Incarnation, humiliation, exaltation. We as his church are to be broken and spilled out for this broken world too. We are to love well and incarnation is our model. That's always been God's plan. One plan through a people, Israel, for the sake of the world. And Israel could not fulfill it. They could not live up to it. So the perfect one, the, the Israelite, Jesus, he comes and he fulfills the law. And we are his body, the church. It is the same mission. It is the same plan that God through a people will rescue the world. We hang between two worlds. It is our vocation. This life is not about you and it's not about me. Not, not if we want to live in a way that is becoming more and more like Jesus. If we want to be what has become the term Christian in our culture, which has been so abused, it's come to mean something completely different, well, then that's a different topic. But if we want to be true followers of Jesus who are being molded and shaped to look more and more like him, then we hang between two worlds with a mission that is more important than our comfort. It's more important than our very lives itself. That's the call. That's what we're invited into, to hang between those two worlds, to incarnationally demonstrate the love of Jesus and the hope that is in him. 
And my prayer for you, my prayer for me tonight is that God will absolutely rock my world with that reality. I was talking to someone earlier today who lives in another city that has all sorts of challenges, all sorts of of corruption. And and, and we we were talking about the fact that living in Fort Collins, as wonderful and as beautiful it is, as it is, it's easy. It's easy to become content, complacent, and coast as a Christian. It's easy. We, we were talking earlier with a couple of, I was talking with a couple of pastors earlier today. I think, I don't remember who it was. I talked to a lot of people today, so I don't remember who it was. But we were talking about the fact, oh, I do remember. There was a couple guys this morning in the cafe. And we're, we were talking about how, what, what typically in churches, people fuss and argue and fight about in America. You know, how long do we stand while we sing? And do we sing the right songs? And, and is it too loud or is it too quiet? Or do we like the guitar? Or do we prefer the piano or whatever? And we just were talking about how I'm not sure followers of Jesus in the Sudan have those conversations. I told you this once, my wife and I were, we were driving somewhere in the car and complaining about, I can't remember what it was, we were complaining about our cell phone or something. And my wise young son, some might say smart aleck, <laughs> little smart aleck, little wise, he said, boy, dad, that sounds like a first world problem. And I hate it when my kids like just convict me. I hate that. But you know what? I mean, you think about that. You think about that. So I, I, I grapple with the reality of living in one of the top places in all of the world to live. Affluent, comfortable. You, even, even Timberline, it, it would be easy for you to coast here. Be easy. Show up, put in your time. What does it mean for you to love well with incarnation as your model? Do you dare say, God, what does that look like for me? Do you dare pray that prayer? Be careful. He'll answer that prayer. And I can't guarantee what the answer will be. But man, it's something inside of me that just craves to say, God, shake me from complacency. Shake me out of, of, of living for me. And show me what it means to hang between two worlds. Your kingdom kingdoms of this world to announce that Jesus is king whatever the cost that's that's what we remember that's what we celebrate that's what we that's that's what we embody in a way when we gather at the table to receive communion we do it every Wednesday night the danger of that is that it becomes rote it just becomes a thing we do well we only question is, is it going to be during worship or is it going to be at the end of the sermon? When do we do that communion thing? Man, that, that bread and that cup, when we think about what that is and what he did and that we're called to be his body, whew, that's sobering. So as we gather at the table tonight, I just, I just want, to, I want to dare you to ask God, What does it look like for me in my life to hang between two worlds?
Let's pray, God. As we prepare our hearts to meet at the bread and the cup, we ask you to speak. And I, I ask that with trepidation. Not because I, I, I'm somehow afraid that you're, you're saving up for me the worst thing I can imagine and waiting for me to ask and then you give it. Not because of that, but because I know me. I know how self-centered I can be. And I know whatever it looks like for me, it's not me at the center. It's you at the center. But God, will you help us take that step of faith and, and, and ask you? And then God, will you begin to show us what that uniquely looks like for all of us. To love well with incarnation as our model. Lord, speak to our hearts tonight, I pray. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come.